the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back as we head into our final hour of the day and week. We do so with one of my favorite people, and that is Pete Peterson. He is the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I always say when uh, we think about the problems in academia, Pepperdine, uh, and particularly their School of Public Policy, is the solution. Pete, happy Friday. How are you doing, sir? with you and always great to wrap up the week with you yeah thanks i feel the same way i it's just it's just fabulous for the audience it's great for me and i you know i sometimes think about going into the weekend uh you know kind of turning the brain off but the problem with talking to you is <laughs> i don't sleep friday nights thinking about the thoughts you implant your your students are probably some of the more tired students i'm guessing <laughs> well we can only hope uh, we, we can, can only hope. hope we want students tired don't we that's we, right we want exactly right we want them tired we also want people happy. It's something I know you talk about a lot, you teach about, you bring in uh, people to give conferences on. And in the classical sense, Dennis Prager has a big bestseller uh, for from a few years back, Happiness is a Serious Problem. And uh, I was just looking at a new study from someone I know you know and have brought out to Pepperdine, uh, a new study uh, that Brad Wilcox over at the uh, University of Virginia Uh, put out, and he has a piece in Newsweek on it, why conservative women report being the happiest and how you can be too. Um, You're familiar with Brad Wilcox's work, and you know this area really well. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Brad's work. As you said, we've we've brought him out to campus to speak, um, and his work on relationships, specifically marriages, um, and what constitutes an effective marriage, the studies on um, men and women and their levels of happiness is probably first uh, important to say and define what happiness means, right? And certainly classically understood and in the research that Wilcox is doing at UVA, it's about a sense of fulfillment. It's not simply a a matter of, uh, you know, humor or or happiness in in those kinds of terms. It's It's a sense of uh, deep uh, self-fulfillment, and certainly what he has seen in the research that he's done is that conservative women tend to be uh, reporting that they are happier in that sense of fulfillment than uh, more progressive or, or liberal women. Did you see anything in his reasoning or in the reasons why that is that surprised you or raised your eyebrows, or does it comport with what you've seen in your research or with your students? Uh, what is it that makes, cons- I guess I'm asking, what is it that makes conservative women more happy than non-conservative women? Well, at least in Brad's research, it seems to be all the seeing life as a uh, more comprehensively, yeah. right? So mm-hmm. one of the things or perceptions that sometimes had is that, well, for 
women to have a sense of fulfillment, it is done purely in a professional realm. Mm -hmm. And the way that we then experience or define that is whether I'm making as much money as my male counterparts. What Wilcox's research is uncovering is that in understanding happiness in all of its dimensions, not just professionally, but including professionally, uh, thinking about family and happiness within the family, being a part of a family, being, in this case, a wife or mother, it tends to be the conservative women that have that sense of happiness because of all those components are constituting or defining what happiness means. And for those on the left, there tends to be a lower percentage of those who uh, find fulfillment or understand their happiness uh, through marital or family relationships. One of the things is when we break this up, we we, we find that uh, Arthur Brooks, remember Arthur Brooks from AEI? You must know Arthur pretty well. Of course. Well, formerly, yeah. formerly president of AEI. He was doing some studies on this about a decade ago and some books on this as well. And I remember uh, a meeting I had with him and, uh, you know, he was making much the same case uh, here and there about conservatives being more happy. And I said, do you get pushback in the academy on this kind of argument? And he said, the data's the data. And boy, Brad yeah. is Brad is Brad is bringing it out again, isn't he? He is. And again, it's one of those things. I, I know we've discussed one of the founding fathers of, of the policy school at Pepperdine being the late James Hugh Wilson. Oh, yeah. And it was Wilson, the hardened social scientist, who often quipped that when our research lines up with common sense, we, we have a sense that, you know, <laughs> we're on to something. We're on to something good. And for the listener, I'm sure they're saying to themselves, well, it, it makes sense if we understand happiness to be not simply in how much money we're making professionally, although one of the interesting things about Wilcox's research is that uh, women in marriages, uh, they're experiencing a higher level of uh, average household income yeah. than those outside of marriage. Right, right. So right even right. if we looked at this purely through economic terms, uh, those who are in marital relationships are doing better uh, financially or economically. But it also goes to the, the reality that we all experience, that when our relationships are good, uh, especially our family and, and closest relationships, we all experience a deeper sense of, of happiness and self-fulfillment. That's right. And you want to be in a community, all, right? It's about that community right. that nurtures. And um, this is kind of a uh, – let me not take too much time on, on this anecdote of my own, but I was at a crossroads uh, somewhere around graduate school on a direction to take professionally, Pete. And I remember talking to one of my dad's friends uh, who had been quite accomplished in life, an attorney. He had been an ambassador uh, abroad uh, and just one of my wiser, one of my dad's wiser friends. And I thought I would go and talk to him about the, 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 the crossroads I was at. And he said something I'll never forget. This would have been many years ago. <laughs> he said, you know, at every point in my professional and educational journey. I could have gone this way or that. I could have taken this job or that. I had this opportunity and that. When he said, here I am at uh, whatever he was at the time, 75. Here I am at 75. And I realized the only decision I ever made that really impacted my life was the decision on who I married. He, of course, was married to the same yeah. woman his whole life. That has a truth to it, doesn't it? It really does. And of course, it, it seems to 
most of our listening ears quite countercultural. Right. Right. So, so much of the emphasis is on career, mm-hmm. uh, while really the things that determine our sense of happiness are those deepest of relationships, which is, of course, uh, family and, and marital relationships, mm-hmm. and uh, really does speak to both the social science research that Wilcox uh, is drawing from in this Newsweek piece, but also just to our own experiences and, and shows how how often we we can be persuaded by popular culture of what's important when we know in our hearts and we take a step back and we see a study like this research uh, that you're outlining here and realize, you know, the first things are the first things. Yep. These relationships really do determine uh, that and the importance of the decisions we make, yay, in our 20s and 30s, mm-hmm. really do and can set the stage for the rest of our life. That's right. That's right. I remember at the time, the same time, the phrases of art was double income, no kids, dink. Remember that? Double income, yep. no yeah. kids. Turns yep. out here, the single income, no kids, which a lot of the media, Brad is pointing out, tries to promote, um, it, it, as you say, the data isn't there. As Brad finds, the data isn't there. Single income, no kids does not make you happier or more money. Both. It's both. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, right. on top of what you're saying, it also turns out, how, what, what's a good phrase for this? The verities, the uh, time-tested uh, time te- uh, reliable standards and time-tested truths. I mean, you can't really improve on how Aristotle uh, talked about happiness um, being in That's the practice right. of, you know, coming from the practice of virtue and uh, excellence in, in behavior, right? That's right. It's, That's it right. still and goes back that far. Of, the data bears it out. It does. Yeah. Yeah, and the first understandings of economy were really the household. That's right. right? And yep. the home. That's and, exactly. And then radiating out from there. So... Yeah, again, once again, we're, we're seeing uh, hardened social science research in the service of common sense. There was a, uh, we're going to head to a break. Uh, I'll pick up with you on the other side of it on this, maybe. But I, I am curious about that same level of consternation or concern with your students. You know, you're, you're, you're teaching them at Pepperdine uh, to, you know, uh, help improve the world. And I imagine students get very many different offers to go this way or that. I'm curious as to what you counsel them uh, professionally when they are, uh, you know, on the horns of a dilemma or at a crossroads uh, as to which way to go. And maybe the answer is, this is a tease for when we come back, maybe the answer is it doesn't matter so long as, you know, your character and your life is otherwise intact and integral. Let's see what you say to that when we come right back. I'm Seth Liebson. He's Pete Peterson, the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Delighted to have with us Pete Peterson. He is the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Talking a little bit about happiness here and some new research from um, friends of, mutual friends of ours, uh, Brad Wilcox at the University of Virginia. He's been a guest on this show. He's, a lecture, he's lectured at Pepperdine. Uh, Pete, uh, with these young adults that you teach, and maybe some of them uh, are even coming back to school after not being so young anymore, uh, when they get different offers, I can imagine many of them uh, will have a little bit of stress as to which way they should go, what they should take. 
uh, more money for more work, less diff- uh, less money. Um, do you tell them to kind of just there's no wrong decision, there is a wrong decision? How do you counsel students ready to go into the workforce in public policy as to what job and which which path they should take? Well, for us, you know, one of the phrases that we use at Pepperdine is that we believe that there's a calling to public service. So in some ways, they've already had the experience of making an intentional decision professionally in returning to school to focus on a an education in public policy, politics, and, and political leadership. Uh-huh. And so as they think about that next stage back into their career, we do use that phrase uh, or the word calling often to think through how do we see a fit between this particular individual and the opportunity that's being presented. So that's that's a primary starting point for us. But the second piece, it gets more into the into the pragmatic, which is it's so easy to say that th- that first step, even coming out of graduate school, that first professional step is going to somehow uh, be where you're going to spend the entirety of the rest of your career. And we know from all the data. And you and me, and you're in my life. We right. know from you're in my that's life, right. right? Yeah, That's right. I'm speaking from personal experience. Parenthetically, let me yeah. add, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, so uh, we can say that, you know, chances are that that first step certainly will lead to a next step, mm-hmm. but it, it it isn't worth freighting that next step with the entirety of the rest of your career. And so thinking through how that next step might fit into future steps. And even if it's not going to be for the same employer, how do we think about that? I mean, obviously, our students are thinking about careers in local government, the Capitol Hill, think tanks, the media, um, the nonprofit world. And so thinking about how this first step sets up future opportunities, whether it's in skills development or um, geographically, uh, trying to think intentionally about the fact that that next step is not, again, going to be uh, entirely determinative of where one is going to spend their their career. Yeah, your next step is not your last step. I love that fra- that use of that word freighting, but it's another word you use. I've heard you use it, I don't know, uh, five dozen times in the course of me paying attention <laughs> to the word calling, and it just now hit yeah. me. It hit me, but well, yeah, yeah I mean, this, this happens. You can, Great professors can give the same lecture over and over again, right? You get a new meaning each time, or you, know, you have yeah. to hear a commercial so many times for it to impact you um, in the first place. But that use of the word calling that you use. I, I now get it yeah. and I now see it. And it's perhaps instructive for the student, I guess, or the the, the professional, I guess, to, to think about maybe just put it through the test. What do you feel called to? Maybe that's what gives yeah. you the happiness. Right. And that can be a mixture of the, the opportunity itself, yep. but also getting a clear-eyed understanding of one's skills and ability. Yeah. And the ability to do that in community with with faculty and advisors, you know, I certainly uh, counsel a number of our students uh, throughout their time with us, and even as they get out into their careers, I'm still in touch with students that have graduated five, ten, fifteen years ago. Um, finding those opportunities to reflect back to individuals: yes, you've got these skills, you can really do this, or I don't really see this in you, but I do see this. Mm-hmm. 
that ability to have those friends and relationships, again, back to, you know, the discussion in the first segment, is just really so important um, in thinking through these career decisions. Uh, Pete, uh, one of the other scholars we've talked about on this show, maybe on our last visit even, uh, I think it was in our last visit, who's been out there and does some work in this area, is uh, Jonathan Haidt as well, H-A-I-D-T. Do I have that right, Jonathan right. Haidt? Has yep. And, and he, has a, he has a take on it as well, right? He has a, a, a slight twist on this. Well, he does. I mean, he was, he was out here on campus just two weeks ago, gave a terrific lecture on, uh, and really a bracing lecture on his deep concerns about the rising generation of, of teens and 20-somethings as it regards to their uh, mental and emotional health. And certainly some of these worries were exacerbated by COVID, where schools were closed and, and community resources and opportunities were, were shut down. But one of the, the interesting things, again, that kind of mirrors uh, the Wilcox research, although it's, it's focused specifically on teens and 20-somethings, is that he, what he's seeing in his research is that young, self-described conservative women mm-hmm. tend to, uh, to self-describe as being happier yeah. than progressive women. Yeah. And he attributes that really to a couple things. One is to the, the level of social media use by more progressive young women and certainly the, the real problems that we're seeing um, in the interaction between teens and social media yep. and especially young women. Yep. But also having a there tends to be a higher percentage of conservative women that are religiously affiliated or committed mm-hmm. uh, to have that sense of a, their relationship and identity from a higher power, if you will, mm-hmm. is certainly important to one's sense of identity, especially in a time when we're seeing such high levels, uh, percentages and degrees of self-reported loneliness, yeah. which again is something you and I have talked about. Oh, before. yeah. No, I, th- I think it's all related. <laughs> and, uh, you know, part of this, I happen to think, too, these 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 greater diagnoses and complaints of depression um, and, uh, you know, uh, loneliness, which is attached to that as well. I have to tell you, I, I do think individual choice certainly is probably the biggest part of it. But I have to say, I think public policy also uh, can move people yeah. further and further into these reaches. Uh, we're seeing it, uh, say, for example, with this dramatic increase in substance, uh, drug use and overdose deaths, poisonings, I should call them, not overdose deaths. I call them poisonings. We're seeing it there. Um, Public policy can say a lot about isolation. I think we got that in COVID. Could we pick up a little bit on that when we come back to? Absolutely. I'm Seth Liebson. Thank you. I'm Seth Liebson. He's Pete Peterson, the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. It's a great institution, just fantastic. Publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Pete and I will be right back.
Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Pete Peterson is our guest. He is the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Pete, we were just talking about the connection of public policy and happiness. Uh, yes, there's the individual choices, of course, about marriage and uh, religious affiliation, uh, religiosity, uh, progressive versus conservative and all that. Um, you're right to bring up this social media uh, aspect of it, particularly with women using some of Jonathan Haight's or Heights. How does he say it? Is it Haight? Height. It's height, right? Yeah. Jonathan Heights research. Um, Public policy during COVID, I think, had a I think we're going to be suffering a lot of after uh, let's say this a lot of there's going to be a lot of mental health issues in the wake of a lot of the public policy around COVID. That's how I would like to say it. And I think we're seeing it with reported incidences and increases of students uh, reporting depression, adolescents reporting it, teachers reporting it about their students, younger children. Uh, Isolating, it turns out, is a big loneliness. It turns out is a big problem. And not only is it a big problem in and of itself, it leads to worse problems. It leads to worse decisions about what you do, not only with your physical health, but um, your emotional health. And uh, public policy can can steer that, can drive that one way or the other, for good or for ill, right? Absolutely, Seth. And it it goes back to something we talked about in the past uh, as it regards to what what were the sources of information and expertise that were used at the time – when states, the nation, counties, school districts were making decisions around closures. Right. And as we discussed in the past, when that source of expertise was focused solely on virology and epidemiology, and we were looking specifically at the question of what is the one thing that we can do to reduce the number of cases, Mm -hmm. then the other aspects of public health, which frankly were trailing indicators, mm-hmm. which were many of these indicators were now mm-hmm. beginning to understand, which were on the mental health part of the broader public health discussion. Well, they were never considered. That's right. And obviously now we're seeing the ramifications of focusing exclusively in one criteria for what was broadly called public health. Mm-hmm at the exclusion of another criteria. Yep. And I think you're absolutely right. And it's and it's really a tragic uh, outcome, one that many people raised at the time. Uh, and again, just to uh, go back to one President Trump's uh, concern that the cure would be worse yep. than the disease. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're, we are continuing to understand the true public health ramifications uh, especially to the young, because of the closures. I get so angry about this issue, Pete, um, because yep. you're right. Uh, some of us were pointing it out at the time, and as early as April of 2020. And as mm-hmm. our friend Heather MacDonald likes to say, almost everything we needed to know about who was being affected and what would be affected, we kind of knew by April, actually, of 2020. You can you can find reports uh particularly from other countries on COVID and children and spread and and uh, mortality rates. And you didn't need a Ph.D. or a graduate degree. Pardon, pardon my <laughs> dismissal of yeah. how important we both find those <laughs> things. But you didn't need one to think what 
is the consequence of shutting down 12-step meetings, church and synagogue um, uh, uh, worshiping services? Uh, what will be the consequence of not visiting the elderly uh, or the hospitalized and sick? What would be the consequence of ripping students from their educational or children from their educational and after-school activities what would be the consequence of closing down the damn gyms sorry for my french i get so mad about it because when we raised those you're right it wasn't considered um not from at least those in charge but when we did raise them we were actually censored and i i think that was i i you know there's some nonfeasance that was spread around here there was misfeasance but there really was some malfeasance might we talk about that when we come back to Absolutely. Thanks, Pete. I am Seth Liebson. He's Pete Peterson, one of the most dynamic public intellectuals. I just follow him on Twitter, too. My gosh, you'll see all kinds of great studies and information, all of it fun and relevant, at Pete4CA on Twitter, at Pete, the number four, CA. And if you're looking for a graduate degree in public policy, you're not going to do any better than the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Pete and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Pete Peterson is our guest. He's the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. We're talking about happiness a little bit and public policy a little bit. And we're talking about, you know, public policy isn't really thought of as uh, leading people to happiness, but there are better policies and worse policies that will lead people to be able to access um, their highest aspirations and do what human beings are naturally to do. And there are public policies that can um, enforce unnatural things. Do you know my friend, Pete, really, I think another dynamic uh, public intellectual, we're blessed to have him in Arizona. I don't know if you know my friend, he's a physician, but he also does a lot of work uh, on religious extremism, Zudi Jasser. I'm not sure if you know yeah. Zudi's work. I remember early sure. on we would bring him in uh, on alternate Fridays during during the shutdowns and lockdowns, and he said something I'll never forget. He said these lockdowns and shutdowns, um, he said, you know, it's it's an unnatural condition for the human being. Think about what we do with criminals. We put them in prison. It's a punishment. And, you know, we aren't, as I said, I mean, study after study is now showing we um, we have uh, probably not we are probably not ever going to get rid of the coronavirus or COVID-19 ever. And yet we will have probably decades of downwash to deal with in the mental health problems that we did create. It is malfeasance and misfeasance and nonfeasance. And I think those who censored us for raising these concerns, and we were censored, I was, I know that, uh, on YouTube yes. for many, many, many takes on this, um, they, they, they're going to get away with it. Um, and they're going to have a lot to answer for at the same time, though. Well, and again, it's my hope that conversations like this one and many others that are are related to help us understand what can happen when, uh, especially in highly technical uh, aspects of policymaking, can be really overly focused in one area of expertise at the at the expense of others, and taking a more holistic approach, uh, which is certainly one that we like to teach at the policy school, but one that has real life and death consequences, yeah. unfortunately, yeah. And, and and ones that were, again, still, and we're just talking about the public health piece, which yeah. is obviously primary importance, yeah. but 
be the loss of educational attainment, the, the ramifications for people being set back, students being set back a year in some cases, some of the other ramifications to child development that we're, we're just beginning to see now. You know, again, we, as you say, uh, people have been raising these calls uh, way back uh, to the earliest months mm-hmm. of the pandemic mm-hmm. and the response. And, and now, uh, two years later, is, is when uh, we're beginning to get a sense of the real ramifications of that. Again, not seeking a statement against interest here, Pete. But do you see in some of this, uh, there's some concerns being raised. Uh, you got you get a lot of this uh, in the works that R.J. Pastrito was doing on progressivism and, yep. um, and, and, and a few others. Do you get a concern about governance by elite or expertise, governance by expertise? I, I, I guess it's by governance like anything yep. else. It can be good and it can be for ill, right? Yeah, it can. And again, we're going to have government uh, from the local level to uh, the state to the federal, the question becomes, who are the kinds of people that are serving in these positions? That's obviously what gets me up in the morning. And having spoken to our alumni who are serving in, who served, say, say for example, in Trump's HHS and uh, Department of Education and so forth, I mean, these are the kinds of people uh, that I want out there making uh, making these decisions, but at the same time, the, the broader critique of expert-driven, elite-driven, uh, non-democratically accountable administrative state, that is, that is real mm-hmm. and, and really needs to be uh, taken to account. And we're seeing just one of these incredible case studies in the response to COVID uh, that demonstrates the importance of accountable, holistic, uh, publicly engaged and informed policymaking. Yes, I, I, that's exactly right. And I don't want to leave this conversation having raised uh, Jonathan Haidt's work, as you have and I have here on this conversation. I don't want to leave it with another level of expertise that people like he and we all are now going to probably have to struggle with, less so at Pepperdine than in most places. But um, he's a a professor at New York University, and he's resigning from one of his uh, professional affiliations uh, because his his leading one, the Society for Personality and Social Psychology, because they're dictating um, that any conference he participates in or any member of that group participates in has to silo their work, has to lead their work into what they call equity, inclusion and anti-racism goals. He just resigned. He says he's not doing it. That's not he used. I think he used that that great uh, Aristotelian word telos, the end. Right. He said that is That's not right. the end of what I do. The end of what I do is seeking truth, not anti-racism right. goals. Yeah, that's right. And unfortunately, within academia, as much as we think about and understand and see some of the stories within colleges and universities as as being challenging, uh, certainly these academic associations like the one that Dr. Haidt is a part of. Yep. But we certainly can look at the American Political Science Association, the American Historical Association. Oh, yeah. So many of these academic associations are, are becoming increasingly ideological and requiring essentially these fealty <laughs> uh, statements and, and signatures that, as Jonathan Haidt has pointed out, 
are not focused on the pursuit of truth. That's right. Uh, which really should be the, at the heart of any academic enterprise. You know, that's right. And it's just so ironic to me that um, uh, university professors uh, and uh, and higher education officials who so strenuously argue on behalf of things like tenure to protect themselves have forgotten that the purpose of tenure was so that they could speak unpopular right. things and they abjured things like loyalty oaths. We're in a world of new loyalty oaths, aren't we, Pete? That's right. And of course, we think back to the 60s and the free speech movement. And, and so many who are part of that free speech movement are now yep. in positions of senior administration. And yep. they're, in, in some instances, leading the vanguard of squelching free speech. Exactly. So it, it really is a turn of events. The upshot of all of this is choose wisely. Uh, choose wisely, yes. right? That's the upshot of all of this. Choose wisely <laughs> right. in your personal behavior, and choose wisely in your academic Very pursuits. Good. But, um, yeah. but, but it's not hard. It turns out the old verities. I'll return to this point. The verities, uh, the reliable standards, and common sense still get you about ninety percent of where you need to get. Right, Pete? Can we end on that note? If you agree with that, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And 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 that question for for truth the search the pursuit of truth is one that's i i believed imprinted in our hearts yep. and one that uh, as students or faculty or anyone interested in lifelong learning uh that needs to be the the north star perfect i love it pete peterson thank you for spending uh, some of your friday with us but thank you also for your friendship and for spending so much time and effort and training our young minds and doing what you do i really appreciate you as, as does our audience pete thank you very much thanks so much seth you betcha i'm seth liebson and we'll be back with one final thought Thank you for spending some of your week with us, some of your afternoon. We really appreciate it. Um, as we go into the weekend, uh, a couple things. First of all, if you subscribe to the Wall Street Journal, I think I'm going to have an op-ed in there uh, tomorrow. You might want to be on the lookout with um, with uh, the great Bill Bennett. I think co-authored something. I think they're going to take it and run with it tomorrow. So you may want to look at that. It's on uh, Biden's uh, announcement yesterday on uh, marijuana and uh, prisoners and convictions uh, kind of relates to what I said in my opening monologue. If you missed the monologue, uh, you can always get everything we do on the show at 960patriot.com. Just as we go into the weekend and I'm thinking about public policy and my conversation with Pete, um, I'm always taken by the line from the Czech novelist Milan Kundera, the struggle of man against power is the struggle of memory against forgetting. Um, the, the thing is about that, that we can replicate good public policy or we can dispense with it and always go in a quest for the new and the untested and the untried. Kind of the opposite of what you think of when you think of a conservative. A conservative means what? Someone who wants to preserve or conserve something. What is that something that we are trying to conserve and preserve? Um, good public policy is the answer. And we thought we had it. Uh, we thought we had it down pretty well with permanent understandings of human nature as found in 
our, our, our founding documents, our Declaration of Independence, and a constitution attached to it or put on top of it that does limit uh, the struggle uh, of, um, of bad, bad public policy from government officials while allowing man, humans, citizens here, to reach their highest of, um, highest of abilities, highest of aspirations, while reducing the power of government. It's still true, isn't it? As Dennis Prager likes to remind, um, that uh, the, greater, the greater the government, the smaller the man. The stronger the government, the weaker the man, human. That's our quest here, folks. That's what we try and define and etch out and sketch out. And most importantly, again to the Kundera quote, remind people of. Reminding and memory is so important. God bless you all. Have a great weekend. Until Monday, I'm Seth Liebson, and class is dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.